children come in sometimes, and I'll say, can God do anything? And they almost always say, yes, God can do anything. No, there's one thing God can't do. What can he do, pastor? It is impossible for God to lie. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a mini-series entitled, Growing Up in Christ, and today we present the conclusion of the third message in this series entitled, God's Call to Grow. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he reminds us that although God calls us to grow spiritually, it is up to us to take the initiative. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues. God is the one who drives our maturity if he permits it, but we play a role. We must do our part. We cannot be lazy. We cannot be slothful. We cannot be dull. We need to be diligent as Hebrews 5 and verse 12 says. Now, please understand, again, some of these believers were discouraged and were on the edge of really being super dull because of persecution. Fast forward a few pages to Hebrews chapter 10 for just a moment. Hebrews 10. I want you to see something starting here in verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 10. The writer says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, there's the word again, speaking of believers, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. He's speaking to Jewish Christians who had been intensely persecuted, and they had become sluggish, but that's not where they started. He brings them back to how they first responded to the persecution. Remember in this chapter, we quote the verse all the time, verse 24, about not forsaking our assembling together, but remember the context. They're not forsaking their assembling together because they don't feel like getting up and coming to church. They're forsaking their assembling because when they walk into that Christian assembly of believing Jews, look who's in that church today. We're not going to go to his business anymore. We're going to give him trouble. And as you study the Bible, you discover that very often people become sluggish, God's people, either in the midst of great blessing or in the midst of great persecution. These in the midst of great persecution. The American church largely in the midst of great blessing. And Moses warned of this temptation just before they went into the promised land. And he gave what Jesus calls the greatest of every commandment, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And you are to love God with your whole heart, soul, and might. And then he said this to him: Then it shall come about... When the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied, then watch yourself. Lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. 
Look, this is not a perfect nation, but it was started by people who fled Europe in order to be able to worship the Lord Jesus according to the dictates of Scripture and not the dictates of the king. And those first winners were horrible. They lost so many. But now we've inherited their prosperity. This country has been blessed. And what have we done? We have forgotten God. In 1975, 78% of Americans were said to have gone to church on a weekly basis. In the year 2000, it had dropped to 43%. In the year 2013, it dropped to 39%. And the most recent survey done pre-COVID, January 2020, it's down to 24%. And I wonder what it will be like when COVID's all over. We have not only forgotten God, we have spurned God. We said it is a woman's productive rights to kill a little baby in the womb. We said that LGBTQA and whatever letter you want to add to it is admirable and we should esteem it when God calls it an abomination. Look, anyone can come to this church. Anyone can be forgiven. But when you are born again, your adultery changes, your fornication changes, your drunkenness changes, your homosexuality, your lesbian, your willingness to take and affirm the life of little children in the womb. It will all change. But we've become cold and calloused. And as a nation, we have forgotten God, and we are ripe for judgment. We are under the judgment. We are seeing the wrath of God that is being revealed. He's saying, listen, remain faithful to the end because God is so generous. But notice, third, God's generosity should lead us to imitate the faithful. It should lead us to imitate the faithful. Now look at verse 12, that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises For when God made the promise to Abraham, we're to imitate those who inherit, not earn, those who inherit God's promises, and this is important, or discouragement will set in, imitate, imitate those men and women like Abraham, who modeled faith and patience, clinging to the promises of God. He's asking them to keep their eyes open, to look at good, positive models, And Abraham, well, he's just the opposite of someone who's sluggish. He's a man who walked with faith and patience because he recognized that God had made the promises and your faith is only as good as the one who made the promise. And when you come to chapter 11, he's going to spend a whole chapter illustrating this very point. But for now, he gives a singular illustration with Abraham. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. We are to imitate those men and women throughout the history of the church and those recorded in the 11th chapter who believed God, who patiently waited on God. Now, if you know your Bible, then you know what we're speaking of. If you've not read the Bible, then you have no idea what this writer is referring to. And if you're new to the Scripture, I get that. But understand, there's an assumption here that they knew something about Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was 65 years old. Abraham was 75. And God came to him. He said, your wife, she's going to have a baby. I swear my name, I will make it possible for Sarah to have a child. She will have a son. 
And after you have a son, through this son, I will bless all the nations of the world. And so Abraham waited patiently for God to fulfill what he had promised. A year went by, nothing happened. He waited 10 years. She's now 76, still nothing happened. He waits another 10 years. She's 86. And then when you reach the time where Abraham's about 100 and she's 90, God came back. And he gets more specific. At one point, Abraham, he wasn't rebelling against the promise. He misunderstood. He thought, well, it must, must be through Hagar. And Ishmael must be the son of the promise. No, Sarah's going to have a baby. I'm 100. She's 90. Read Genesis 17 and 18 if you don't know this. But while we're here, let me give you some divine commentary on what took place from the book of Romans. Turn back to Romans 4. I think we have time for it. There's no slides for this. You should turn. Romans, the fourth chapter. Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, we learn something about Abraham's faith. And while he laughed on the outside in astonishment, he never laughed in unbelief. On the inside, he totally believed and trusted what God said. Listen to Romans 4, verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which he had spoken. So shall your descendants be. In hope against hope, when it did not make sense, when his physical body in no way could pull it off, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now listen to verses 19 and following. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that God, what God had promised, he was able to perform. That's faith. That's believing. When the circumstances shout no, when you have to wait on God for his timing. This text says here, he did not waver in unbelief, but he gave God glory during that waiting time. Remember, his name is Abraham. What's your name? Abraham. Every Jew knew what that meant. A father of multitudes. How many kids you got? None. But he trusted God in spite of the circumstances. So God's justice remembers our loving service. God's generosity should push forward our service because he'll reward us for it someday. But quickly and finally, God deals dependably with his people. God deals dependably with his people. God now demonstrates in verses 16 to 20 at least three ways in which he has proven to be dependable. First, in verse 16, we learn that God's dependability is seen in his word. It's seen in his word. The writer of the Hebrews now brings into focus as to where they live and by application where we live even today. Look at verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Now, what they did, we still do today. Twice in a court of law, I put my hand on the Bible and I raised my right hand. I promised to do, I promised to swear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. You are swearing by one greater than your own name, namely the name of God. And because you are swearing by the name of God, at least historically, that's what we are expected to do. We are expected to tell the truth, that we will not perjure ourselves. 
Of course, the Judeo-Christian system on which our government functions and operates does not work when a nation of people no longer fear God. And so people would gladly swear in a court of law and then perjure themselves at the same time. Our freedoms fundamentally can only function if the nation reveres God. There's no rule of law where there's no reverence for God. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So in biblical times, before the days of attorneys, and I illustrated this in my series on Genesis with Abraham, men would come to an understanding, and then through different means, they would give an oath. And it would end every dispute. Today, we make a promise, and we might add a handshake to it, to our word. And it heightens the promise that you are going to do that which you've promised. Now, don't miss verse 17. Let's bring it together. Verses 16 and 17. In the same way, desiring even more, and I have those two words circled in my Bible, even more, because God wants to underscore the reliability of his word, his commitment to fulfill his promise. He made to Abraham a promise, and he added to it an oath. And we studied that in our series in Genesis, and I reviewed the unconditional oath that God made with Abraham in a dream one night when he was asleep. In the same way that men make oaths, God desiring even more to show to the heirs, that's Abraham and his offspring, and all who have the faith of Abraham, that's us, the promise of the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed that is guaranteed with an oath. So here is God swearing, but unlike men who swear by someone greater than themselves, God has no one greater than himself by which he can swear. So what does he do? He swears by his own name. Now, why would God do that? Is it not just enough for God to say it and for it to be done? Yes, it is. But many times in Scripture, God will add an oath to what he has said because of the fragility of our faith. And he's not only given the promise, but he's confirmed the promise with an oath. Listen, you put your hand in that Bible and you are swearing because of the authority of the word of God that what you are about to say is absolutely true. The scripture says in Psalm 138, Psalm 138, 38, that God has exalted his book, his Bible, above his own name. God has sworn that every single word in this book is absolutely true. Jesus said down to the smallest jot and tittle, and so to drive his point down even further, God is not only shown dependable by the promises of his word, but secondly, God's dependability is seen in his character. It's seen in his character. Now, obviously, it means nothing for a dishonest or unreliable person to make a promise if he is not a person of integrity. The promise is empty. It's of no value. But let's put verses 17 and 18 together in our thinking. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his promise, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. 
Now listen, do not miss this. By two unchangeable things, specifically God's word, we just mentioned, and now God's character, that God does not change. God said in Malachi, I, the God of Israel, do not change. We call that the immutability of God, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he affirms it right here in the text, and that he says, it is impossible for God to lie. Children come in sometimes, and I'll say, can God do anything? And they almost always say, yes, God can do anything. No, there's one thing God can't do. What can he do, pastor? It is impossible for God to lie. Listen, when God promises to do something, we have an uncertain guarantee, a hope that is built on his word, that is built on his character, but it is also built on the dependability of his son. And so now he gives us a third way in which we can stand firm. God's dependability is seen in his son. Let's read verses 19 and 20. I'm almost finished. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus is entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, most of you know that we have different symbols in the Christian faith. For instance, here's one of the most popular symbols of the Christian faith, the cross. It's the place where the Lord Jesus died. And this is a symbol of a cross that was found etched in, in a, on a floor in Israel, uh, in a specific place known as Bet Shean. Some of you have been with me to Bet Shean. It's the very town. We looked at the very place where Saul and his three sons were hung on a wall. Well, centuries later, Rome took that place over. And of course, that place is mentioned in the book of Colossians. But here we find this symbol of the Christian faith. Another very popular symbol is that of the fish. The word fish in Greek is the word ichthus. And here's a more elaborate artifact artifact of a fish found in Israel, and you actually see the Greek capital letters for the name fish. That, those four, five letters there spell fish. But they are an important five letters because they served in the first century as an acrostic. Ichthus. Jesus Christus Theos, we are Soter. Jesus Christ, God, Savior, Son. We paraphrase it, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so the fish is a symbol of our Christian faith. And of course, another symbol, maybe less known to many of us, is that of an anchor. And here is a, a picture of an anchor that was found in the catacombs. It was actually etched into the side of one of the walls where some believers were buried. And there are 66 such anchors etched. Where did they get that? They got it from the only text in all the Bible that speaks of Christ being pictured as an anchor, and it's the text we're in today. Sometimes you have a combination of symbols. Some of you have been with me to the garden tomb. That's not the best picture. I know you can't see it super well, but it is the cross and the anchor brought together. And here is a picture of all three found again in the catacombs. You have the anchor, you have the cross, and you have the ichthus. Now, the anchor is an ancient symbol of our Christian faith, and verse 19 underscores it. Look at verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. We have a sure and certain hope, and it's described, notice, as an anchor that has been anchored within the veil. What on earth is he speaking of? Well, if you remember, God had Moses 
create a tabernacle. When he came down from Mount Sinai, he not only had the Ten Commandments, he had blueprints for the tabernacle. And the scripture reminds us that the tabernacle he built was a picture of a real actual tabernacle not made with human hands that someday we will see in heaven. And of course, the temple, a later permanent structure, emulated the same architecture and layout. And if you remember, there was a veil, and on one side of the veil, there was a room called the Holy of Holies, and it was the holiest place on the planet. And that at that point in human history, God in his glory would actually appear when the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Jews just celebrated it earlier this week, on Yom Kippur, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the, high, into the Holy of Holies and there would be this chest that's pictured here. And it's a box-like structure. They were not to touch it. They carried it on poles when it was being transported. And the top were two cherubim. And the top of that cover is known as the mercy seat. Here's a picture on this next slide of what it looked like on the inside. Based on Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4, there were three objects in the Ark of the Covenant. There was a second set of Ten Commandments. It represented God's standards. Remember, the first were broken by Moses because of the rebellion of the people. God made a second set. There was the butted rod of Aaron that represented not God's commands, but God's provision of leadership. And then there was the a jar of manna that represented God's provision of food. And if you've read your biblical history, they spurned all three. And so once a year, symbolically, the high priest would go in with the blood of a perfect, unblemished animal, and he would place it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a picture that God had atoned or temporarily covered for the sin. And one of the things the writer of the Hebrews makes a distinction between is sin being atoned for and sin being taken away. High priests could only atone for sin. Jesus took it away. So in verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters not into the harbor, but within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. In the next four chapters, he's going to describe in Hebrews the ministry of Jesus within the veil. You see, when you are in a boat, you anchor down. But when you get saved, you anchor up. The anchor in glory, the scripture says, is behind the veil where Jesus took it. Now, in Bible days, when a ship came into a harbor, they didn't have engines like our boats in this, these days. They came under full sail. They brought the sails down, and they were dependent on the currents, the wind, and the oars. And there were some harbors in the world that were very treacherous. And so there was a man who would come with his little boat, and he would take the anchor of that ship, and he would put it in his boat. And the technical name for the man who took that anchor and then carried it into the harbor and led the ship safely in, it's a technical Greek word. It's translated the forerunner. Jesus is our forerunner. And this text of Scripture is not about ships and anchors. It's about what Jesus did for us. Again, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. He's gone ahead of us. He is anchored within the veil. Our salvation in heaven Listen, if you've been saved, you are inseparably connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of our hymns reflect this. Two weeks ago, 
Mad Hatter sing a hymn on Christ's solid rock. I stand today providentially. I didn't ask him to. He didn't know what I was preaching on. He did another hymn on an anchor. Let me read the one of two weeks ago. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Where does that concept come from? This one place in all the New Testament. You say, I don't see the anchor. Well, I don't see the anchor either when I throw it over the side of a boat. My anchor is in heaven, and while I don't see it, I feel the tug. And one of these days when the tides are right and everything is just perfect, God's going to haul me in, and I hope he's going to haul you in. I hope you've not missed the point of these three weeks. What is the writer to the Hebrews trying to say to us? In the first half, he describes an aimless life, the believer who's not growing. And if that's you and you still have an inkling to make it right, you should start today. But in the second half of this chapter, he deals with an anchored life. That God's person is so certain and real as seen in his word, as seen in his character, and as seen in his son. Now, there was a time when I was anchored down and I was headed for hell. But in the mercy and grace of God at 18, I was anchored up. And one of these days, he's coming for me. And I'm looking forward to that day. Is he coming for you? You say, I don't know. What do you have to know? You have to know that Christ died for you. He was buried for you. He was raised for you. That's the gospel. You say, well, I know that, but I still don't know. Listen, if you know that you're bankrupt, that you can do nothing to earn salvation, and that only the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ can save you, and that it's on that basis that God says, you call on the name of Yeshua, the Lord, and I'll save you. If you don't believe that, then you are denying what our text says this morning. See, if you don't believe what God says, you're either saying, God, you can't do it, like you're weak. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Or you're saying, God, you won't do it. And if God says, I'll do something, and you say he won't, you're calling him a liar, and that's the opposite of faith. And it is impossible for God to lie. Now, I don't know what you're going through and what the winds of this life and the storms may be doing to you. But if you know Christ... You have a sure and certain person to whom you can cling and trust. Now, Holy Father, I thank you this morning for the chance to study this passage of Scripture with my brothers and sisters here. I pray for those within the sound of my voice who have never met you, that they would see that today is the day of salvation, that they must come on your terms, that tomorrow may be too late that the tug they feel today may be gone tomorrow. Their life could be extinguished before this day is over, or Jesus could sound the trumpet and come and receive his church. So help, I pray, someone in simple childlike faith to believe what you promised, because Jesus did what he did, that you can say whoever will call in his name will be saved. Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's final message in our three-part series, Growing Up in Christ, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program GIC1, GIC2, and or today's study GIC3 entitled God's Call to Grow. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.